things he's doing here. And I look forward to what you're going to say and do through him today and the days forward. Pour your Holy Spirit into him now as he brings us this message of peace and proclamation. Everybody said together, Amen. All right. Good morning. So the trick is, if you don't want to wear a mask, come preach. All right. Let's start out this morning. Our scripture passage is from the second chapter of Ephesians, starting at verse 11. Let's listen together for God's word. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that at that time you were without Jesus being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built spiritually into a dwelling place for God. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, before we get started, I'm just going to introduce myself and want to share some greetings with you. Again, my name is Ben Voss. For several weeks now, I've had the opportunity to be part of the online community of Good Shepherd through our social media channels, and I'm also serving as a communications consultant to support the staff. Now, as Jeremy mentioned, I've known him for over 19 years now. We've been through some of the most pivotal moments of each other's lives together. Now, I'm a native of Minnesota. I grew up in the Twin Cities. Yeah, sure, you betcha. And uh, my family attended Faith Christian Reformed Church. I attended Calvin Christian School before heading off to Irondale High School. Growing up, my dad taught in uh, inner city Minneapolis public schools for over 30 years. And uh, my mom was a laboratory supervisor in a medical clinic. But uh, she also owned a kid's consignment shop for a while called Pass It On and uh, even drove the school bus for a few years. I'm the second of four kids. And uh, I'm a graduate of Wheaton College in the Chicago area. Uh, I studied uh, philosophy as an undergrad and then went on and got my master's degree in clinical psychology. And after coming to Nashville, I worked uh, as a family counselor for Cumberland Heights, which is a, a treatment center for those who are affected by the disease of addiction. I later uh, worked for an organization called Family Dynamics Institute, which uh, was focused at the time on, on reducing the national divorce rate by 10% within 10 years. 
And they did that through church-based marriage enrichment programming as well as reaching out to couples in marital crisis. Eventually, I got my own therapy practice. I did a lot of work with adult children of divorced parents as well as uh, families affected by addiction issues. And I also had an opportunity to work with families experiencing homelessness through a safe haven family shelter and also worked with soldiers and families embraced uh, up in Clarksville to help families, uh, service members, veterans, their families. And uh, most recently have been working to provide financial education to children and families through my work with Junior Achievement and most recently with World Financial Group. So, but really, why I'm here today on August 8, 2021, is because of Jerry Hammink and Brian Bosher. And more on that in a few minutes. Let's go back to the passage that we're studying, Ephesians 2. The scripture lesson says uh, in, in the beginning, therefore... So we want to go back and understand a little bit more about that. Now, we actually know quite a bit about the church in Ephesus, uh, as well as Ephesian history. There is a great temple to Artemis in Ephesus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Well-known location. We also know, uh, because of the testimony in the book of Acts, chapter two, uh, uh, chapters 19 and 20, there's two chapters that describe that Paul spent a period of about two or three years in Ephesus. It was his home base for a while. And uh, during that time, we see a foreshadowing of the letter that we're studying now, the letter to the Ephesians, in a speech that's recorded in Acts chapter 20, where Paul's message is recorded at length. We see at the end of his time in Ephesus, there's this tearful, emotional farewell. Paul is on his knees praying for the Ephesians. The elders in Ephesus are all crying and kissing him. And it says, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. So Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a reminder to them to guard against false teaching, hold on to the inheritance that's promised to them, and not to give up working hard to help those in need. Where we started, chapter 2, verse 11, begins with the Greek word dia, which means on account of all this. In English, it's often translated as therefore. And I learned a long time ago in church that when you read the word therefore, you've got to see what it's there for, right? So we can go back and understand what comes beforehand. So technically, this takes us back to last week and what Pastor Jeremy talked about in chapter 1. Paul is an apostle not by human power, but by the will of God. He reminds the Ephesians that God has chosen us from the foundation of the earth to be holy and blameless before him in charity. The riches of God's grace have been lavished on us, and God has gathered us all up in him through the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given the Spirit as a deposit for an inheritance of a heavenly kingdom and a down payment on an eternal home as members of the divine household. Paul prays that the Ephesians will be enlightened with the eyes of your heart, he says, that they'll be opened. With, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power for those of us who believe. God has given us Jesus Christ, and through Jesus, this power that is far above any human authority, and not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And then we move into chapter 2, which starts out, you were dead. Now, the gospel sounds different to people who know they're dead than to those who think they're still alive. Richard Rohr writes about this in his book, Breathing Underwater, where he talks about the attitude of the shipwrecked pointing to the experiences of, of members of Alcoholics Anonymous, Rohr writes, it's not a worthiness contest. There is only an absolutely necessary starting point. The experience of powerlessness is where we must all begin. 
And Alcoholics Anonymous is humble and honest enough to state this, just as Jesus himself always went where the pain is. Wherever there was human suffering, Jesus was concerned about it now and about its healing now. It is rather amazing and very sad that we pushed it all off into a future reward system, Roar writes, for those who are worthy, as if any of us are. It reminds me of Charles Dickens' opening in The Christmas Carol. The Marleys were dead, to begin with. As dead as a doornail, Dickens writes. Paul writes to us, You were dead in your transgressions through the sins in which you once lived. Now, of course, they weren't dead. They were spiritually dead. The word dead, or necros, isn't the same word that Paul uses elsewhere for the saints who have fallen asleep or for those who have passed on. The word thanatos seems to suggest someone who's gone to the afterlife. This word is necros. Paul's saying that their lack of spiritual awareness and their attitude was so caught up in the passions of the flesh that they had no hope for eternal life. So back in 1990, when I was a teenager, the movie Ghost came out. made a half a billion dollars at the box office. And the movie features Patrick Swayze. Maybe that's why it made a half a billion dollars, right? Who dies and sees his own lifeless body and then wanders around disembodied in the story. But he lives on and eventually takes over the body of a psychic con artist, Oda Mae Brown, played by Whoopi Goldberg, right? Now, Paul's talking about the opposite. Maybe it's a little bit more like zombies in The Walking Dead. I don't know, you know. Paul is talking about people who are spiritually dead but still physically living. Unconsciously, they're just wandering around seeking out whatever the physical desires of the moment might be without any thought to the condition of their souls. Frankly, it sounds to me a lot like addiction. So caught up in the satisfaction of my desires and trying to get the next hit that I don't see any greater purpose or vision than the pull of whatever shiny object is in front of me. Or, or they're so obsessed with social achievement, the push for power and wealth and grasping after more, whatever more is, that they're unable to see anything else of value. Or they're just surviving, just trying to get by. To find enough. They can't really see beyond the next meal or the next fix or just trying to fill their bellies or their wallets or their egos. Now, 175 years ago, Søren Kierkegaard was living in the bourgeois Danish culture of his time, and he saw good, socially acceptable Christians going through the motions of their faith, but without any real transformation of their heart. He described his project as reintroducing Christianity to Christendom. In his book, Practicing Christianity, he writes, To be a Christian has become a nothing, a silly game, something that everyone is as a matter of course. Something one slips into more easily than one slips into the most trifling accomplishment. As the old saying goes, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a, car, a garage makes you a car, right? Yeah. And for what it's worth, as a kid growing up in church, in Christian schools, I was just going through the motions and I knew it. I was doing what it took to fit in, what it took to please my parents and teachers. I was pretty good at that. But in the role of playing a Christian, I secretly held the whole thing at an arm's length. By the time I hit high school, I'd begun questioning the whole enterprise. And frankly, I was tired of the restrictions and rules, all the ways my family was keeping me apart from others in my neighborhood and school and community. I was basically ready to cash in my chips and give this whole eternal inheritance thing, just give it up, because it wasn't really particularly good news for me. And I didn't really feel like playing by a different set of rules and missing out on the fun. So what good is good news? when it means just saying no to a bunch of things that I want 
and missing out on all the green grass on the other side of the fence. What's so good about that? I guess all this is what brings me back around to Jerry Hammock. So Jerry attended Faith Church with me. He was a friend of our family's. He's old enough to be my grandfather. And since my grandparents lived, you know, six hours away, and my, my mom's parents lived 20 hours away, they were, they were like second grandparents to me. Jerry and Kathleen uh, owned Jerry's Bake Shop, which was well known in town for being a place you'd go to get birthday cakes, wedding cakes, things like that. And he'd grown up in the Navy. One of the things I remember about him is he's one of the first people I knew who had a tattoo. This is a guy who was a, a fully engaged, conscious, contagiously Christian believer. But he's also someone with a past. He was somebody who had a backstory. Jerry was one of dozens of people that I just took for granted as a kid. Partly because I was too busy being a kid to get to know any of the grown-ups. And he was certainly not someone to whom I could entrust my doubts, or so I thought. So I kept it all a secret. I just kept the whole thing from everybody, from my parents, my family. I would keep quietly going through the motions, enjoying my freedom and fantasy life on the inside, and avoiding any appearance that I was anything other than a good, smart, talented Christian person. So when it was time to sign up for the Christian Reformed Youth Convention in 1991, I went along with it. I figured, yeah, if this God stuff is real, I guess, you know, maybe I'll go and God will reveal himself to me or something. So my girlfriend at the time, Desiree, uh, had just moved away to Ohio. I was feeling really sad about that. And I didn't tell anyone about that either, actually. In fact, I didn't really tell my family about Desiree at all. She was an avowed atheist, so it was better to keep that a secret. And I wasn't going to bring her home to meet my family. So I go to this youth convention, and it was more fun than I thought it would be. My parents had met at Calvin College, and I'm 100% Dutch, so going to this event was like an extended family reunion for me. It was like, you know, there were games, and a couple of buddies of mine, we we, uh, did a little parody on Ice Ice Baby called Christ Christ Baby. Um, I'm not doing that today, Jeremy. No, not going to happen. No, I'm not going to happen. I still remember it, though. Now, before long, I had realized I was taking the whole thing for granted. I had had allowed my familiarity to breed contempt. And instead of feeling like I was trapped inside the church, recognizing that I was trapped inside my own secrets and shame, for probably the first time in my life, I actually wanted to be part of the family of faith. So when Brian Bosher shared the gospel on the final night of this convention, I was hearing it differently. It wasn't because he was such a great preacher. He did a great job, by the way, of you know, sharing the power of the Holy Spirit in some ways that were new and helping me to understand relevant things that affected me as a young person, right? I think the thing was the Holy Spirit was working on my heart. And Brian spoke to that. And he was one of the first people I had heard preach who actually made an invitation to discipleship. Being one of the frozen chosen, that was something that didn't really happen very much in my home back in Minnesota. So we invited people to come forward. And I heard a voice inside me say, go. And I'm, here I am. You know, 30, days, 30 years later, that was 30 years ago today, August 8th, 1991. So here I am with you. That's why Pastor Jeremy asked me to share this with you. 30 years later, right? I'm still a beloved child of God and a follower of the way of Jesus. That's by no means the end of the story. That's just the beginning. But we're pressed for time, so let's go back to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. When I returned home, back to my home congregation, now as sort of a baby Christian for real, Jerry Hammack taught me about the foundations of the faith. And I'm going to share with you what he taught me. The core of the entire Christian faith is in Ephesians 
2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own. It's a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We were dead in our transgressions. Dead in our transgressions, but made alive through grace by faith in Christ. That's the good news. Therefore, verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you were Gentiles by birth. You were far off without Christ, without hope, without God in the world. But now you who were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ. Whew, I'm getting goosebumps saying it. Wow. Verse 14, he is our peace. Paul shifts from talking about the universal experience of powerlessness and being dead in our transgressions, constitutionally incapable of saving ourselves, to talking about what happens as a result of the new life that we experience in Jesus Christ. He is taking groups historically divided. Jews didn't associate with Greeks, and Greeks thought that Jews were crazy for this whole circumcision thing. And he destroyed the dividing wall between us. Instead of this crazy social order where you've got these two groups pointing fingers at each other for being different, Paul says, no! Jesus has abolished the law with all its commandments and ordinances and has reconciled both groups, putting to death the hostility that is between us through his death on the cross. All of these human power structures, all the pecking order and the religiosity and the legalism of the Jewish community and the political imperial structure of the Roman Empire are meaningless and empty because we see in Jesus Christ crucified the total emptiness of these systems of power. And we see the full power of God to take the death of an innocent man treated like a criminal by humans who couldn't handle the good news of our powerlessness and of God's gift of the Holy Spirit. And they turned that event into something that transformed the world through the power of the resurrection. Amen? And that's why we're here. So let's pause for a moment. Where do we see hostility and division today? We see literal walls being built at the southern border of the United States, right? We see political division, social, cultural division. 58 years ago, Martin Luther King said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour in Christian America is the 11 o'clock hour on Sunday morning. There's racial division. Economic division. Socioeconomic inequality is growing at a rate we've never seen in the history of the United States. We see theological differences. We see divisions that are now threatening the very unity of the United Methodist Church itself. We see the ways that social media helps us create our tribes, right? It keeps us safely connected to like-minded people who have the same preferences that we have. But we're also seeing, through social media, the same types of social media, right? Making us aware of just how different we are. How often... People are treated as less than, or apart from, or other, instead of being affirmed as children of God. Now, Paul was a gifted student of Gamaliel. He called himself faultless as a keeper of the law. A Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. He had every reason to stay safely inside the system until he had a vision of the risen Christ that forever transformed his attitude and changed the entire world in the process. He tells us in another letter to the Philippians, but whatever gain to me, I now consider loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I consider that all a pile of garbage, he says. Scubalon is the Greek word. It's just a bunch of rubbish. Filthy rags. Not by works, so that no one can boast, not even Paul. Now, Creating divisions does have a way 
of helping us feel connected to our in-group. We can define ourselves by who we're not. It's often easier to define ourselves in opposition, to build a coalition around our shared hatred of them, the other side, whether it's SEC football or political partisanship or the way we treat immigrants or any group that we define as other. Coalitions, factions, gossip can make us feel powerful as members of the in-group. But if you've ever been on the other side of that, shipwrecked, powerless on the outside, you know that Jesus had a tendency to minister to and with those who were on the outskirts. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He built a reputation for spending time with women of questionable character. And he dared to break Sabbath laws and challenge the status quo and speak out against the hypocrites, right? The, the ones who cleaned the outside of the cup but failed to deal with what was inside. Divisions keep us from belonging. Some of them we just create in our own hearts and minds. Holding others at an arm's length and feeling terminally unique, you wouldn't understand, no one's gone through what I've gone through. And for years, my automatic negative thought has been, if you really knew me, you'd abandon me or reject me. I don't know why I believe that. I just believe it. Where did I learn to think that way? I have no idea. So, I've tried to avoid being truly known. Some divisions are created by others. Um, marital therapist and researcher John Gottman refers to what he calls the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These four deadly sins of relationship that can predict when a marriage is headed toward divorce. He could actually predict with 90% accuracy within a 15-minute conversation which couples would be divorced because of the way they treated each other. The first one he saw is called criticism. It's not just a specific complaint, but just a blanket judgment about someone's character. You always, you never, if you can wag your finger at someone while you're saying something, chances are good there's criticism involved. Or, what's your problem? What's wrong with you? I'm seeing married couples look at each other and smile and nod right now. It's great. <laughs> and, of course, the natural response to criticism is defensiveness, right? That's the second horseman of the apocalypse. It's a natural reaction to criticism, of course. There's denial, minimization, counter-accusing. I'm not the one with the problem. You've got a problem. You've got to get over it. Efforts to try to prove the other person wrong. Talk about the, well, but, but I took out the dishes that one time, and I don't always. Instead of accepting the influence and acknowledging the validity of our partner, recognizing their perspective and seeing their pain, we try to reduce that to something. No, no, you don't really know what you're talking about. And that blame-defend cycle feeds itself. It's self-perpetuating. Now, the third, and this is where it gets really scary, honestly, is contempt. Contempt is just a form of giving up on the person. Forget it. Never mind. Just whatever. There's no point. It's treating the relationship and the person as a lost cause. I just washed my hands of you. I'm done. And that leads to the fourth, the nail in the coffin. Stonewalling. Stonewalling is often just the silent treatment. You just hear nothing. Or that look, the far away look. Anymore now, I think that, that more couples that I see spend time disconnecting by finding something else to do on their phone or you know, engaging in some other hobby or whatever. Could be just a dead stare, a refusal to engage, to be intimate, to open up. I've worked with thousands of couples over the years, and I can say that the dividing wall of emotional hostility creates a distance that is more vast and greater than thousands of miles of physical separation. Your partner can literally be sitting next to you, and they're not emotionally available. 
And it's into this division, this hostility, this set of barriers that Paul writes, he is our peace. Remember who you were. Remember where you were. Without hope, without God in the world. Remember that you were dead in sins and transgressions. Remember where you were when you started. Remember that without Christ's love and the riches of God's mercy, you were as good as dead. But with the power of the Holy Spirit through Christ, anything is possible. And I can say, I've seen that too. I've seen miracles happen. I have seen the power of forgiveness and reconciliation. Edward Markham wrote about this in his poem, Outwitted, which I just love. He drew a circle that shut me out. Rebel, heretic, someone to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle and took him in. So who can you draw into your circle? Who have you been holding at an arm's length? Where have you been putting up barriers? Where are you experiencing disconnection and alienation? Wherever you are experiencing powerlessness and feeling shipwrecked, Paul says, remember where you started, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own. It's a gift from God, not by work, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, God's poema, God's poem, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May the peace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you today and always. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ben, for that first message, and let's make sure it's not your last. Well done. A lot to think about. As we just kind of soak in this opportunity of peace be still and just sit in the presence of God. I want you to listen to the words of this song. Think about the things that Ben has said this morning and just allow it all to kind of come together. What does it mean that God is our peace? Let's soak in these words. Be afraid, cause these 
Let faith rise up. Oh, heart, believe. Let faith rise up. You need your faith to rise up right now? You need your faith to go in that gap and be able to take on whatever it is that you're facing in your job, in your life, in your world, in your health, in your family, with your children. Let faith rise up in me. We leave this place no longer strangers, but members of God's own family, brothers and sisters through the blood of Christ. Together we're being built into a holy dwelling place where God lives by the Spirit. So go out with joy and confidence for love and to serve the world. For we do not go alone. Amen and amen. And may the peace of Christ be with you all. with God today. Yes.